Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate just about 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. So I'm excited today. I have a colleague who has uh, agreed to have a conversation with me um, to talk about his work and to talk about his new best-selling book. Uh, some of you may have already seen it posted uh, announcing today's show, and it's uh, called Never Go With Your Gut, How Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions and Avoid Business Disasters. So I'm proud to uh, have today uh, author and and consultant with us, Dr. Gleb Sapersky. Welcome, Gleb. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. It's a pleasure. Yeah, well, such a pleasure to have you. So as you already know that, um, so I'm a professor at Columbia University, and um, I'm excited to talk to you because I authored a class probably now, and I'm going to date myself now, about 15 years ago, uh, that is titled Introduction to Leadership and Decision-Making. And years ago, the short of it is that I discovered that there was a science out there called decision-making, and I didn't know that it existed for so long. And like many others, I'm sure I thought decision-making for the most part was just something that, you know, you, you were good at and you, uh, some of it was luck, but a lot of it was just, hey, off the cuff, I just know how to uh, see something and I know what decision to make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I learned the truth, which is there is a scientific way to approach decision. Um, interestingly, I tell my students when they get in the, uh, the course, because it's not all decision making, uh, some of it is just leadership skills, but mm-hmm. a large part of it is teaching them the science of decision-making, I Mm -hmm. I even say to them, uh, you're never going to buy a refrigerator the same way after this Um, (laughs) because you'll be able to apply it to a lot of different things that um, both personally and professionally. So I know that you you are uh, someone that has done a lot of decision-making and interestingly, risk management strategies. Uh, so mm-hmm. I know uh, that you're in the category of a behavior science, um, so many articles, and I'm still trying to catch up on all the things. I keep going back and finding more and more that you've written. Uh, so I, I see where, and it's probably growing every day, that you have over 550 articles and 450 interviews. So I'm just really um, honored to have you join us today. So let me start by asking you, tell me a little bit about how you got into um, writing and thinking about decision-making, uh, but also a little bit about the risk management piece, because I think they go hand in hand. But uh, tell me how, how you started with this uh, as, a, as a career. Sure, happy to. Well, I've always been interested in decision-making. And it's something that I was interested in as a kid. And when my parents taught me the typical thing, which is go with your gut, right? You feel, like you said, Brian, you feel that that's one way to do it. And that's what you should do. And that's the right thing to do. But then I saw my parents making some pretty bad decisions when they went with their gut in their own relationship. So for example, my mom liked to buy nice things. So she'd go out, she'd buy a $100 sweater. 
And my dad was kind of a cheapskate, so she'd come home and he'd start yelling at her, said no sweater should be worth over $20. And then she'd bring up stupid stuff he did, and then they'd go back and forth and it would be another scandal. And this kept repeating like every three months. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, clearly going with your gut is not doing wonders for their relationship. Sure, so sure. I kind of learned that. Yeah. Then when I was growing up uh, around 18, I was, that was 1999, when there was the dot-com boom, companies like Webvan, Pets.com and so on were booming. And then in just a couple of years later, when I was 21, there was a dot-com bust when they all went bankrupt. But you know what? In 1999, the Wall Street Journal and so on were praising the leaders of Webvan and Pets.com. And in 2001, 2002, they were criticizing them. But the, it was the same style of decision-making, right? Same leaders, same decision-making. It's just, you can clearly see that it's completely random because they were going with their gut. And so that both that personal side of me and that as I was coming of age, that business orientation made me really interested in decision-making. So I decided to go into academia, I got a PhD in the history of behavioral science, looking at how people decide in historical and contemporary contexts. Mm. And I was in academia, I, got, I was lecturer at UNC Chapel Hill, then a professor at Ohio State. At the same time, I was doing consulting and training for companies on the side, the classical moonlighting academic. Mm -hmm. And then I was, as you mentioned, I was publishing all these books and publishing all the articles in Harvard Business Review, in New York Times and so on, Fortune Forbes. And then in 2018, I left academia to run my own consulting company full-time, Disaster Avoidance Experts. And like, as you mentioned, my most well-known book is Never Go With Your Gut. And that's what I've been doing so far. I've helped many companies right now. I have many Fortune 500 clients ranging from Aflac to Xerox, as well as middle market companies and large and late stage startups. Mm. So that's what I do. That's my expertise. And that's how I got into it. Yeah. Fascinating. And so um, you, you talked about history and and that you studied a bit um, of how decisions were made, historical decisions. I assume you're talking about like world leaders and and, yeah. and company leaders. Tell me a little bit about that. What what who, anyone stand out that you said that's someone I want to I want to know more about? Sure. So I studied my PhD was specifically about the Soviet Union hmm. because I was really interested in a modernity that's different from the United States, but also very modern in a different way. Because going outside of my own culture, the context of the United States, but part of my background and heritage was my family was born in the former Soviet Union. And I came here when I was 10, which was 1991. So I was born in 81, came here when I was 10. And I was really curious about how the decisions take place there, because very different economic context, very different business context, organizational context. And I found out that the kind of mistakes we make in decision making are very similar in the Soviet Union and in the United States, which really helps you see that it's not about the cultural context. So we can say, well, is it nurture? Is it nature? Right. What kind of this, the way that we make our decisions? Is it just the culture that we're in? And it's not. The kind of decisions we make bad, good and bad decision-making really comes from our genetics, these dangerous judgment errors called cognitive biases, which I think we'll get into. Yeah. And so these cognitive biases are present in people everywhere, yeah. whether it's the United States, whether it's the Soviet Union, whether it's you know China, whether it's 
India, anywhere, you'll find the same kind of errors. And that's why it's so invaluable to learn about them, because you won't only help yourself make better decisions and in your own country and context, but everywhere globally, when you're, and we are in a multipolar global world now, you need to understand that these kinds of bad decisions are taking place everywhere. And I, you know, there's plenty of examples that we can see now of people making pretty bad decisions world leaders. I mean, Vladimir Putin certainly did not anticipate that the war with the Ukraine would go so badly, and he clearly made some bad decisions. And there are plenty of other world leaders that we can talk about who made bad decisions yeah, in the past. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you just said something that made me uh, reflect about uh, being in a leadership role uh, that we can look and see almost from the outside looking in, we go, oh, that's, that wasn't a really good decision. And so often I find myself, whether I'm looking at the news or whether I'm listening uh, to someone talk about decisions that they've made, and I say to myself, I can't be that smart. I would have known better than that. What is it mm -hmm. that sometimes, you, let me back up and say, sometimes I also say, they must not have any friends because anyone, <laughs> anyone around me, I hope would tell me making a decision of that is that big of a decision and making it mm -hmm. poorly. I hope there would be people around me that would say, no, let's, you want to think about that. Mm -hmm. But, but my point is, what is it though, that sometimes we see that from the outside, we see things so clearly in a decision mm -hmm. model that other people don't see about their own circumstances. Is it kind of the human condition that mm -hmm. I'm, I'm ignoring things? So you you started to talk about the biases. Are those the, is that what's clouding our judgment around making certain decisions? It absolutely is. And I'll give you a good example. Yeah. So there's a study on students, because you know a lot of these psychology studies are done on students, but it applies to all sorts of contexts. So a study on students who are looking, who had to do a final paper for their semester to graduate, so mm -hmm. seniors. And they were asked at the start of the semester, they were broken up into two groups. One group was asked, hey, if everything goes perfectly, everything goes you know, swimmingly, wonderfully, how long do you think it will take you to do your final paper? And they said, eight weeks. Then there was another group, this other half of the class, they were asked, hey, how long do you think it will take you to do your final paper? Mm -hmm. And they said, eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the difference between the inside view and the outside view. You know, from the outside, we can see and say, well, that's ridiculous. Obviously, you know, things don't, things will not go perfectly. But when we look from the inside view, so that's the that is the technical terminology here, the inside view and the outside view, we fall into what's called the planning fallacy. So the planning fallacy is one of these dangerous judgment errors. It's cognitive bias. We can talk about why they come about a little bit later. But the, as an example, it is the thing that causes us to have an extremely positive view of our plans, the kind of activities mm -hmm. that we will be doing. Yes. We see our plans, we don't see all the problems. And the leaders that you're talking about, I mean, they're heroes in their own mind. They think that everything will go well. They have this inside view and they ignore all the things that might go badly. Yeah. Why? Well, yeah. because our identity is to think of ourselves as great people, as wonderful people, we are the heroes in our own story, and we don't anticipate all the ways that things can go wrong. 
that's the large majority of us don't have a perspective of, you know, how can this go wrong? What can I do about it? Yes. There are ways to address that, but our intuition is not to do that. So leaders see things as going great because they are smart. They came up with a plan, right? And therefore, everything must go fine. And so the same way that students do. And so that is a classical mistake, you know, that takes, <laughs> causes a great deal of problems. When you look at large building projects, there was a study in 2004 that looked at large building projects. It found that about 86 of them go over time and over budget. And that's building projects. I mean, going over time and over budget, that's planning policy, right? Another study in 2015 looked at major programming projects, like let's say building a new website or introducing a database. 84% of them went over time and over budget. Another example of the planning policy. So all of these things, we can see them very much in our lives. When we make a plan, it's really going to be on a major thing. We will tend to see that it goes over time slash over budget, whatever kind of resources we need to use, just because of our intuition and our ignorance are not paying attention to all the ways that it can go wrong. Yes, yes. And, and, and I can't remember um, what exactly it was I was reading earlier today about how much people overestimate their, how smart they are, if you will, um, mm -hmm. how accurate they're going to be. Um, yeah. And it was interesting. The finding was that, um, you know, people, uh, there was a, um, a, a, there's a test that they give people and then they say, um, how well do you think you did? And mm. and the ones that actually scored low overestimated mm -hmm. by like 20% what how well yeah. they really did. And then the people who scored highly underestimated how well they did. Mm -hmm. You know, they they yeah. were about the same, but but they were miles apart in terms of having a realistic sense of self. Um, but yeah, so this, that, that, that tendency is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Exactly. So I think that's what you're thinking about, the yes. Dunning-Kruger effect, yeah, after the two authors discovered it. So that's another cognitive bias, yes. where it refers to people who are not skilled at something very strongly overestimating their skills, whereas people who are skilled at something tend to have a somewhat underestimation of their skills. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what it was. Thank you uh, for reminding sure. me of that. And and so I want to go back to you. You mentioned, and I know in your book you talk a little bit about the um, the decision making. They're not called steps, but they're they're these um, uh, they're they're ways to um, you have questions about. Uh, mm -hmm. that you should ask yourself to avoid decision disasters, but you yes. also have like these, the eight, um, eight decision, I think you call them eight decision-making um, uh, model. And, mm -hmm. and so very similarly, when I'm, when I'm teaching decision-making, there are two that stand out. Um, and we, we, I think we pretty much saying the same thing, but there are two that stand out every time I put students through a simulation of, of a case and I say, now make a decision about this, there are two that they don't do very well at all. And I'd love to get your reaction to this. One, mm -hmm. one thing I ask them to do is to predict unintended consequences of the decision mm -hmm. so that that's very mm -hmm. important. And that's part of yeah. what I heard you just saying was that they don't take into consideration what could go go wrong. 
And I yeah. really urge them to think of it as, so there, of course, there are uh, a lot of benefits to the decision. And that's the reason you're making the decision you the way you want. However, let's say that it doesn't go the way you think it should go. And <laughs> what could possibly happen? Like consider that as well. So they people don't do that well. I'd love to hear yeah. your reaction to that. But the other thing that I think, and it's always, this is kind of at the end of your decision-making process is what I call benchmarking and uh, evaluation. And so um, in, in a nutshell, I say, ask yourself, how will I know I'm successful? Or how will I know that this was a good decision? A lot of times people don't imagine it will be a good decision when X is happening. People are saying, people are doing, I am seeing. They don't imagine the world after the decision. They just say, okay, the decision will be good and it'll 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 work out, but don't imagine mm-hmm. kind of the world. So, but those are the two places where they get they always look and get information from the stakeholders. They get that. They try to identify what the need is. They all they do that fairly well. But those two areas consistently over the years have been places where people don't do well. Love to hear your your reaction to that. Sure. Yeah. And when I work with clients guiding them from major decisions, those are definitely big, big areas of challenge. Although I do see another area of challenge where they don't look sufficiently at information that might disconfirm their beliefs. Mm. So what and I think it has to do with the way that business leaders are taught to make a case which is called a business case, right? Mm -hmm. So what's a business case? A business case is where you come up with a scenario that you want to achieve, and then you gather information to prove that you're right. That's what a business case is, right? Yeah. That's not a great way to make a decision. That's a great way to get your way in a company because it's a rhetorical strategy. It's a way to convince people, but it has nothing to do with whether it's the right thing to do or not, whether it's the right decision. So the key is that is missing when people make a business case, and I have to repeat this to my clients again and again and again, there are three keys. One key is look at information that does not conform to your beliefs. Try to disprove your beliefs. Try to prove yourself wrong. And weigh that information more heavily than your intuition suggests you should. That's incredibly important, because otherwise you're just going to look for information that confirms your beliefs. So try to disconfirm your beliefs. The second is, you know, getting to the first point that you made, is about look at how things can go wrong and what you can do to prevent them. Because again, the, that planning fallacy, people tend, with the business case making, people tend to look at ways that things will go wrong. So instead, what you should do, I mean, it's great to look at those ways, but you really need to look at the ways things can go wrong. And look at the intended consequences, the ways that things can go wrong. And then as part of that, of course, try to figure out ways of addressing these problems in advance. You don't want to simply identify them. You want to address them. And so that's the second. And the third is what new information can change your mind. And that has to do with key, with measurements. So evaluate the quality of the decision. Because what leaders tend to do is they want to make a decision, they want to go on. I mean, they have tons of things to do, right? They're very busy. They work 70, 80 hour weeks, right? I totally understand that. But if you don't look back on a decision and say, okay, 
this decision was it right or was it wrong you'll never a you'll never learn how to make better decisions and b you will not catch issues and mistakes that are developing and then you'll have a lot more fires to put out so the leaders are very busy putting out fires and they're not realizing that a bunch of the fires can have been prevented in advance if they a ask what information they're missing if they b try to figure out ways, things that might go wrong and how they can address them in advance and see, measure the outcome of the decision and revise the decision if it doesn't go well. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I you made me think of something just now uh, related um, and and it is, it, it's about risk. And, and a lot, so when you, when people are trying to sell an idea to let's say potential investors, or in the case of people in the public sector, uh, trying to convince people of a particular policy or a particular law. And a lot of times you'll have people who will say, will this prevent 100% of X or Y? And of course, the answer is is not. I mean, the answer is no. It's not a hundred percent. But what we, it's hard though, as leaders, is that you're trying to sell people from of some uh, to buy something or or get their buy in on an idea, and and so we tend to minimize. And I think this is an important piece that when we we go from selling the idea and getting the permission to do it. <laughs> Um, without highlighting the risk involved. That seems to be the way you get funding. It's that yeah. I'm, I, there, there are risks, but they're minimal. Let's not even talk about them. Yeah. And then somehow you have to pivot when you're in the lead. Now that I've, okay, we, you've, you have the money, go for it. You have the resources. I believe in you, go do it. Then you pivot and say, now in the leadership role though, I have to think differently because I really do have to, as you said, try to imagine myself making mistakes or make, uh, that this won't go completely as intended. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my background, I, it's, it's interesting, my, my background is in chemistry. And so my undergraduate degree is in chemistry. And many times in an organic chemistry lab, we would do these calculations and we'd spend two, three days uh, creating something in a laboratory and our yield would be 7% or 11%. And you did all of this stuff just for a little bit of product. And what it taught me kind of in the other world was that sometimes that's just what you get. So I'd love to hear your reaction to that too is, so what about when, how difficult it is for that pivot to happen with leaders to then go, and if you have any, any uh, strategies about not forgetting that, um, that you have to think about things differently once you are engaged in the project. I think it's very important for leaders to be able to wear multiple hats. And one of the biggest failures of leaders is not being able to make a mindset shift. And so there are two modalities in which leaders need to exist. One is the selling slash inspirational modality. Yeah. So there are one, and another one is analysis and evaluation modality. So selling and inspiration, you sell to your investors 
and that's and you get the money. Then you need to have an analysis and evaluation and planning. And then you need to go back into the selling and inspiration. So less selling, more inspiration to your people, to inspire them to actually do the thing that you decided is the right thing to do. So those are two separate modalities. And any leader who has a weakness in one of those modalities will not succeed in the long run. Yeah. You know, you, that is very important. Or they need to be complemented by a leader who does have it. So you see, like, let's say a visionary leader. They're great at selling and inspiring. They're terrible at evaluation. And you, there are a number of those leaders out there. But they need to be complemented by someone who is by their side, who collaborates with them, who is very analytical, and who is able to analyze and evaluate and is trusted by this visionary leader and vice versa. So that is the, the best leaders, of course, combine qualities of both. So the leader needs to be able to sell. And then they need to put on a completely different mindset where it's not about trying to convince someone. It's not about trying to make a business case. Let's go back to the business case. It's not about making a business case. It's about figuring out the truth, figuring out the reality. And that is very different than making a business case. Figuring out the truth, figuring out the reality is a completely different endeavor than trying to convince someone of something. So you want to be, instead of being kind of confident, coming across confident, inspirational, you want to be humble. You want to be analytical. You want to be evaluative. You want to try to prove yourself wrong. And that is fundamentally important. That's a kind of a closed door conversation. That's when I have closed door conversations, coaching or consulting with leaders. Those are the kind of conversations we have where the leaders, there's a reason that leaders say, well, it's lonely at the top, right? Yeah. Because the, at the top, it's they need to appear to everyone else mm -hmm. to, who in a public role as either selling or inspiration, which of course correlate with each other. Yeah. But behind closed doors, in leadership conversations, they need coaching conversations, they need to take that off and they need to put an evaluative analytical mindset. And so my book, Never Go There, Got Our Pioneering Leaders Make the Best Decisions to Avoid Business Disasters, is all about that. Mm. It's not about the inspiration. Leaders often make the, the, the problem with a lot of leadership books. So kind of you know, going a little bit meta here. You have a lot of leadership books that are built only around the public face that the leader needs to put uh, out. Yes, yes. Because that's only like what's the charismatic, observed. The charisma. Exactly. The, yeah, yeah. Exactly. That's what's observed. So when a public, so when someone writes about a leader or when they write about themselves, they only write overwhelmingly about the observable part, about the vision, about the inspiration, about the selling. Yeah. But half of what the leader needs to do is behind the scenes, decision-making, evaluation, planning, strategy. That is where you need to be much more humble and evaluative and analytical and not try to just bulldoze over everyone. Yeah, you need yeah. to, otherwise you just get groupthink and everyone will do what you want them to do if you're the leader, just because they don't want to be downplayed in the status hierarchy. So you need to be analytical, humble, evaluative. I need to look at the situation accurately and acknowledge all these biases. Planning fallacy is just one of the 30 cognitive biases that are most important for leaders that I talk about in my book, yeah. that you really need to address. And then in Kruger effect, I talk about that too. You really need to address, otherwise you'll be making some pretty bad decisions. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, in the very first part of your book, you you talk about, and almost, I think you, you frame it as danger zones uh, about the biases. And mm -hmm. um, just right up front that, that that's, it seems to be a very big message 
that you are delivering right up front is that you have to confront and understand that 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 you have bias in your decision making process and there are ways that you can you can you can address those so um wow it's already you know we're we're we we're almost at the end of our time I, but i do want to uh ask you uh if you if you could say there's a a big take home for that you want people um to know about why they they should uh really get this book and read it i mean i think i i strongly recommend it for those of you who are listening that are in leadership roles i i am a i am a proponent of of strategic decision making um across the board i think it's you know leaders make decisions all the time and this is another set of tools uh that you can put in your 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 strategy box um but I, i'd love for you to just say a few words before we go about um what you what the take home is you think is uh behind uh, this book but second key is that you should not trust your intuitions our intuitions lead us astray very often. And this is something you've seen many world leaders, many business leaders make. I mentioned about the, you've seen many companies go bankrupt. I mean, even people who are as genius as Elon Musk, right? Let's say he bought Twitter, he clearly acknowledged that he paid more than twice as much as it was worth, right? We see people who are brilliant, genius people making terrible decisions all the time. So you want to not pay twice as much for <laughs> what something is worth. Yeah. You, know, you want to make the right decisions and you want to differentiate that. So the all the business books that are about leadership, the part they get wrong is that they only focus on that public facing visionary yeah. selling inspirational part of it. This book is about the other half of leadership, the analytical evaluative part, the mm. kind of mistakes that people tend to make and how to address those mistakes. And it's doable. It's, doesn't, it's not intuitive. You need to learn about them. There is a science behind them. And if you learn about them, you integrate them into your daily life, you'll be much better off. You'll be a much better leader and you'll be a much better person. We didn't even go into all the personal life stuff that this book is applicable to. And I talk about that, some of that in my book. But you want to be a good leader. You want to be a good person. That's what the book is about. So that's why I talk about never going with your gut. Your gut may be right. You might It might be wrong, but you need to try you need to use your head to evaluate whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, excellent. Thank you. Well, listen, Gleb, do you have, I know that there are people out there that are going to want to um, read some of your other materials. We have so much out there. Thank you for the work and the research that you're doing. Um, tell us um, social media handles, uh, website, podcasts, where where can people follow you and and learn more about the work you're doing? Sure. Well, the first thing is, again, the book, Never Go With Your Gut. It's available in digital, paperback, or audio form, so check that out. My website is disasteravoidanceexperts.com. That's, again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com, where you'll find all of that information with social media and so on. I'm especially active on LinkedIn. And if you want to get a free assessment on these cognitive biases, these dangerous judgment errors, go to disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Again, disasteravoidanceexperts.com forward slash subscribe. Yeah, 
Thank you. Thanks so much. You've added to me today and I'm sure so many that are listening in. And so I'm going to be looking forward to catching up. You have so many great pieces out there. Um, I'm going to do my best to catch up on some of these and and certainly um, recommend that first this summer uh, to my next class that I'm going to be teaching in uh, leadership and decision making. So I uh, appreciate it. And I'll, I'll continue to uh, to look out for your work. And so until we meet again, go well, 